Deuteronomy 18 is our text this morning. I would invite you to turn to that portion of Scripture if you have a Bible with you. If you don't, perhaps you can look on with the person who's seated next to you. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We get our uh, title, Deuteronomy, from the first translation of the scriptures, the Greek translation that we call the Septuagint. Uh, They named it Deuteronomus, the uh, second giving of the law. The uh, Hebrew name for the book is Devrim, words. It's taken from the first uh, phrase in the book. These are the words. Actually, I think the, the Jewish title is much more appropriate because these are the words of Moses, the prophet. Uh, this is his uh, is a series of messages which he delivered to Israel as they were preparing to uh, to enter into Canaan, a place that was full of deception, and corruption, lies, fallacies, myths, legends, old men's tales. Uh, the problem is how how do you distinguish truth from error? Same same thing is true today. You know, our culture is cluttered with fallacies and illusions and. Uh, superstitions. But even more serious is that behind the uh, fakery is a, is a monstrous reality. Behind all the lies that uh, are pervaded by the media, by our well-meaning friends, is a, is a monstrous, wicked, evil personality. Uh, something wicked this way comes. There's a barbarous, murderous spirit a being that uh, wants to blight and maim and, and ruin and destroy. Uh, this is the one of whom Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. That's his aim. Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his native language, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, oh, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is the liar. And the father of lies. He's the mind behind all the messages that tell us to go for all the gusto, but go for it apart from God. To go our own way, to live our own lives, for to look for meaning and success and significance uh, apart from God. And when he gets us to believe that lie, he's accomplished his purpose because when we're separated from God, as C.S. Lewis said, what, what can we do but wither and die? Now the question is, how, what answers do we have to the lies that pervade our that are pervade that are pervasive throughout our uh, our culture? Uh, people are so confused, and we get confused. Where is there some truth? Where's an arrow that says this is up? Where is a compass that says this is north? Uh, where is a tuning fork that says this is a? Where is some standard by which we can govern our, our life and determine what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's ugly, what's, what's beautiful, what's meaningful, meaningful what's, uh, what's trivial? There are two ways of lying. Uh, you can lie against the truth or you can turn the truth into a lie. Let, let, let me explain. Suppose you go to, uh, I was about to say a butcher shop. Nobody goes to a butcher shop anymore, but suppose you go to Albertsons and you go back to the meat market and you... Uh, you want to buy some bacon. So the butcher throws a few rashers of bacon on the 
on the scale. Scale reads 15 ounces. He says that's a pound. He's lying against the truth. See, you know there's some skullduggery afoot, so all you have to do is look at the scale. Scale becomes the judge between you and the butcher. You have something to measure the lie by. But suppose someone tampers with the scale so that it that 15 ounces now read a pound. Then even a well-meaning butcher will cheat you. He may throw in a few slices uh, for good measure, as he puts it, but it still doesn't add up to a pound, see? And he has deceived you. He's cheated you. You see, and that is the problem in our age. The standard has been denatured. It's been distorted. Nobody knows any longer what's right and what's wrong. There's no... No fixed reference point, no parameters around which we can uh, can orient our lives. Uh, counselors, for example, whose oath is do not harm, uh, say to a counselee, well, your, your, your affair is okay. You know, variety is the spice of life. As long as you love one another, as long as you're not hurting anyone, then it's okay. That's the good measure that's thrown in to make adultery all right. See? But adultery is not good. It's terribly harmful. There are the, the divorces that rip your hearts apart. There are the custody battles. There, there's the demolition of once happy families. There's the, the heartbreak of the little ones that are left behind. We, we all know about that. And, and, and people don't know what to do. Terribly, awfully confused. Where, where's the standard? Well, it all began with Moses. And that's why I wanted to start with this passage in Deuteronomy 18. Now, as I mentioned, uh, Moses is preparing Israel to venture into the land. They're about to engage in the conquest of the land of Canaan. And he was well aware that that, that Canaanite culture was a corrupt culture. And so he was preparing Israel, giving them a standard by which they could determine what is right and what is wrong. I want to begin reading with verse 9. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. Moses well knew that the Canaanites would teach them. They would inculcate these uh, values into uh, the minds of little children, young people growing up, and older people. So he says, don't learn these detestable things. The, the word detestable is an interesting word in the Hebrew language. It's actually a word that signifies ambivalence, both attraction and, and revulsion, which is characteristic of our age. The things that God says are an abomination all, all also seem very attractive to us, and while we're repelled from them, we're also drawn into them. See, that's the danger. That's what makes the error so insidious. It looks so good, but it is so destructive. So Moses says, I, w- I, don't, I don't want you to learn from them. There's another teacher that, that I want you to give heed uh, to. Verse 10, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fires. Referring to the terrible worship of Moloch, who ate little children, destroyed little little children. In, in, in these sacrifices. Or one who uses divination, or one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or anyone who calls up the dead. 
whoever does these things is repulsive to the Lord. And because of these these things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. He gathers together here every word in the Hebrew vocabulary for the dark arts, all the occult practices of the Canaanites, the witchery, the sorcery, the tarot cards, the Ouija boards, the fortune tellers, the those that uh, read tea leaves, the crystal gazers, uh, the necromancers, those that called up the dead, those that conducted seances. Every word that's, uh, that can be found anywhere in Semitic languages is used to, to describe the activities of, of these Canaanites. You see, their heart was, was to discover the will of the gods. Their intent was good. They wanted to know the future. They wanted to know how to live in the present. So they turned to these devices in order to discover uh, truth. Verse 14, These nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. In other words, the way to determine the uh, will of God is not to discover it. The only way is through uh, through disclosure. Moses not only forewarns Israel against the perverse activities of the Canaanites, he forearms them. He gives them a standard. He gives them a way to determine what's right and what's wrong. And what he's saying is this. Listen to the prophets, the women and the men that God will raise up who will speak truth. So the question is, well, you know, there are a lot of false prophets around. How do we determine, determine those that are true and those that are false? And what follows are a set of, of standards, criteria that we can use to evaluate anyone who speaks, any prophet, anyone who claims prophetic sanction. We can listen to what they say and we can test their teaching according to the truth. So what follows are a set of standards by which you can you can tell a prophet. First, he'll be like Moses. He or she'll be like Moses. Three times we're told in the Old Testament that Moses was not like any other man because God spoke to him face to face. Actually, the, the Hebrew idiom is uh, he spoke to Moses mouth to mouth. It's a picture of of two people conversing with one another, give and take. God speaking to Moses, Moses speaking to God. Direct revelation, nothing in between, no mediators. Moses didn't receive truth through tea leaves and tarot cards and, and, and through looking at animal livers. He, he stood before the Lord face to face. He went into his little chamber, his little sanctuary, and he listened to what God had to say, and then he came out and he talked to his people. So the first standard is someone who receives direct revelation. Someone to whom God has spoken. The second standard, interestingly enough, is that he or she must be a Jew. That's interesting. He must be one of your countrymen, it says. Paul says in Romans that, that the oracles of God are given to the Jews. God chose one nation to whom to reveal his nature. You know, how out of God to choose the Jews, we say. Well, how, how out of God to choose anyone? He didn't choose the Jews because they were particularly insightful or had some understanding of God that no one else had. He just happened to pick them. He could have picked uh, people from Idaho. If we'd lived back then. 
And he could have revealed himself to us. He just happened to choose one, one ethnic group, one set of people, and he, he revealed his will to them. There's no fellow in the Old Testament, he's not very well known, his name is Balaam. Some of you may have heard of Balaam's ass, the donkey that rebuked the prophet. He was a wizard, he was an astrologer, came from Mesopotamia. He was hired by Balak, who was a pagan king, to curse Israel, because that's what he was famous for, cursing people. When he came into the presence of the living God, he couldn't curse them, he only could bless them. And every time he opened his mouth, he blessed them, you know, a fact that drove Balak absolutely wild. One of his blessings went like this, Yahweh, Israel's God, is among them. The shout of a king, capital K, a king, is among them. There is no sorcery in Jacob. There is no divination in Israel. At the proper time, it will be said to Jacob and to Israel what God has done. You understand what he's saying? Of all nations, God chose Israel. Jacob's just another name for Israel, as you know. And, and it was to the Jews that God made known his, his mind, his oracles. That's how the nations knew that God was in their midst. No divination. No no witchcraft. No sorcery. But a God who revealed himself face to face to the prophets of, of that country. Those people. That means that Khalil Gibran, the Syrian prophet, is not a prophet. Period. It's not a Jew. That means that uh, Joseph Smith, Edgar Casey, Gene Dixon... They're not prophets. They're Americans. Come from the U.S. of A. That means that Sun Myung Moon is not a prophet. He's a Korean. He's not a Jew. It means that Nostradamus is not a prophet. He's a Frenchman. There are no prophets apart from the Jews. So what we're looking for is a, a Jew who receives direct revelation. The third standard, according to this text, is that he will speak in God's name. In other words, he will not say anything that's contrary to what's been revealed. He'll not divert from the revelation that, that, that's already been provided. You could lay his message alongside the rest of the prophetic messages, and they will coincide. Earlier in chapter 13, when Moses was, was delivering another of his messages, he said, if a prophet... Or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder. And even if that sign or wonder which he has spoken takes place, and he says to you, let's follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let's worship them, do not listen to him. He's a dreamer, he says. He's not a prophet. Say, well, prophets come, they look powerful, they gather a great following, they do miracles, they heal people, they raise the dead. But if their message does not coincide with the revelation that God has given, we're not to listen to them. So a prophet is a Jew who receives direct revelation and who delivers a message that is coincident with the message that's already been supplied. And fourth, verses 21 and 22, you may say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How do you spot a phony, a false prophet? 
Verse 22, this is God's answer. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be in awe of him. One of the marks of a prophet is that he or she predicted the future with 100% accuracy. See, it was not like playing miniature golf in one of these courses where all the all the green slope toward a hole. You know, you hit anywhere close by and the thing rolls in the hole. Yeah, no, no, it's got to hit right in the, right in the hole. See. Every time. They could never miss. That's the reason there was a predictive element that was always added to the prophetic message. We think of prophets as fortune, as future tellers, you know, forth, foretellers. Their primary message was to foretell. They were preachers. The predictive element was added in order to authenticate their message. They gave both short and long-range prophecies as a well of, as, as a way of establishing that they were, were indeed prophets. So that's how you tell a prophet. A Jew receiving direct revelation, delivering a message that, that's in line with the rest of the Word of God, and predicting the future with 100% accuracy. Now, for myself, I do not think there are any prophets today. I, the, the gift that's called prophecy in the New Testament was extant in the first centuries of the church. Those were Jews predicting the future with 100% accuracy, receiving revelation and delivering it. But I don't think there are prophets uh, around anymore. I think now we go back. We go back to our historic origins. We preach what the prophets have preached. We stand on their shoulders. And we proclaim the message that, uh, that, they, that they proclaim. Now, the Old Testament prophets fulfilled all of those, uh, those standards, the, the criteria that I, that I mentioned. That's how, that's how their, their writings found their way into the Bible. Moses was a Jew predicting the future and uh, receiving direct revelation, and his writings were immediately accepted into what we call the canon. That is, the, the, the standard by which uh, the books of the Bible are, are evaluated and, and included. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses wrote those books, so they were immediately accepted as God's word by the Jews. Interestingly enough, the next books, the books that we call historical books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings are called the former prophets by the Jews because they were written by prophets. They weren't histories. They were preachments, proclamations, see, by people that were had been authenticated. Samuel probably wrote portions of those books. We don't know who wrote the rest of them. But uh, whoever they were, they, they, they uh, readily fulfilled the requirements. Then you come to what the Jews call the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve the little books at the end of, of our Old Testament. These these were all prophets. Now that takes care of the Old Testament. Everything in the New Testament was written by someone who was a Jew receiving direct revelation and uh, predicting the future with 100% accuracy. Or everything in the Old Testament was written under the aegis of someone who had who had prophetic authority. That's how these books found their way into the Bible. That's why the Jews accepted the Old Testament. That's why Jesus accepted the Old Testament. He didn't quibble with any of it. 
It was that book that Paul is thinking about when he said all scripture is inspired of God. The word he uses for scripture is is the Old Testament, those books that we call the Old Testament. And the Jews well knew that this promise that a prophet would come was not exhausted in the in the literary or the uh, preaching prophets of the Old Testament. They they always look forward uh, to something more. Uh, The woman at the well, in her conversation with Jesus, said, I know that Messiah, the one called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he's the one who will explain everything to us. She was looking for that that prophet. When Jesus fed the 5,000 at the end of that miracle, the people who were the... On the receiving end of that miracle said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come. When John the Baptist was preaching, people poured out of Jerusalem down to the Jordan to listen to him preach. And the first question they asked is, are you that prophet? That is, the one who, who fulfilled Moses' prophecy, I'll raise up a prophet from among you, from among their countrymen like you, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and, and he'll speak to them all that I command him. That That promise is fulfilled in the Old Testament prophets, but it was ultimately fulfilled in our Lord Jesus. See, that's why Hebrews says, first, you know, first rattle out of the box, first verse. Says God, who spoke in various ways to various people in, in olden times, has in these last days spoken unto us in the Son. He is the prophet par excellence. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, Moses talked about me when he said a prophet has come this is the last part of john 5 he didn't listen to moses he said if you'd listen to moses you would have listened to me because moses said i was coming you didn't believe him but i'm he i'm the one that that moses uh, had in mind he fulfilled all the criteria he was a jew receiving direct revelation predicting the future with 100 percent Accuracy. See, that's what the Mount of Transfiguration was all about. Jesus took his uh, the three in the inner circle up to the top of the mountain, and there uh, Elijah and and uh, Moses appeared. Why Elijah and Moses? Because Moses represented the the literary prophets of the Old Testament, the writing prophets. Elijah represented the, the preaching prophets of the Old Testament. Those were the two great prophets of the scriptures and of Israel's history. And the Lord was among them. He was one of three prophets. And uh, remember the apostles uh, wanting to build three booths. Let's uh, build shrines here for the three. Moses, the great prophet. Elijah, the great prophet. Jesus, the great prophet. And this voice boomed out of heaven and said, This is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And God actually quotes the Greek translation of Deuteronomy 18. This is the prophet. Listen to him. Now, that's why some people put red, you know, they they like red-letter Bibles. Because Jesus is that prophet. His words have resounding authority. But you say, we don't have anything that Jesus wrote. That's true, we don't. The only thing he wrote, he wrote in sand with his finger. It's long gone. All we have are the writings of the apostles. How did they get involved? Well, well, I'll tell you how they did. They were prophets. They were Jews. 
Those that were not, Luke, for example, wrote under the authority of prophets. Luke wrote under the authority of uh, uh, Paul. Mark, who was not one of the apostles, but he was a Jew, wrote under the authority of Peter. They were prophets who were predicting the future with 100% accuracy. You see. They received face-to-face revelation. And Jesus, and they are prophets, I should say, because Jesus transmitted his authority to them. When he was in the upper room, our Lord promised, when the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, when he comes, he, and here, he's just talking to the, the apostles in the upper room, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. That's our warrant for writing the New Testament. Have you ever wondered how they could remember with such incredible accuracy what Jesus said and did? It's because the Holy Spirit reminded them. See, they wrote the Gospels. They wrote the Gospels after they wrote the Epistles as an explanation of who Jesus was. But they wrote as prophets with the same authority that Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and other of the Old Testament prophets had. That's why when they wrote, their writings were accepted. Paul says to the to the folks in in uh, Thessalonica, when you receive my words, you receive them not as the word of men, but as they really are, the word of God that is that at work among you. And here's the writing of a man. He says, this is the word of God. It's not the word of man. What audacity, unless it's true. If it's really true, then he's simply stating a fact. He was. Jesus also said in the upper room, When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. You see, that's why the apostles were accepted as prophets, because they were able to predict the future with 100% accuracy. So what we have here is a a prophetic book. This This is the word of the apostles. We call it scripture, but this is the word of God. These are the thoughts of God. This is the mind of, of, of Christ. This is our standard. This is our ultimate authority. This is the truth by which all other truths are evaluated. That's why we go back. See, We go back to our historic origins, to our roots. Uh, John says, Anyone who runs ahead, who goes ahead, and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not, does not have God. We don't run ahead. Christianity is not avant-garde. We're not always adding to the revelation. We're not always venturing out beyond the edge. We go back. And we mine our truth from, from the Word of God. And that's what we declare to our age. That which was from the beginning. Which the apostles heard. What they saw with their eyes. And their hands handled. This is what we uh, proclaim. I said last Sunday, I quoted a friend of mine, Greg Reeder, who said, why rail against the darkness, rather light a candle in its midst. And I, and I said that this little short series that we're doing has to do with the darkening, lightening the corner where you are. One of the ways we do so is by prayers. We saw last week, God will show you what to do as you make yourself utterly available to him. The second way in which we bring our crazy world into sync and shed light on the darkness around us is is to speak the word. 
It's great wisdom and frankness. Just declaring the word to our age. That's the truth that people are looking for. That's the truth that's been forgotten. I came across a little poem by John Whitleaf or John Greenleaf Whittier. It's last week. It goes like this. We search the world for truth. We call the good, the pure, the beautiful. From graven stone and written scroll. And all the old flower fields of the soul. And, and weary seekers of the best. We come back laden from the quest. To find that all the sages said is in the book our mothers read. That has a peculiar point, poignancy for me because my mother was a woman of the book. She uh, taught the Bible all over the southwestern part of the United States. and She was a woman of the word. She saturated her mind and I can remember night after night coming home and, and looking down the hall as I went to my room and finding her at her, at her desk in her study with with the scriptures open, saturating her heart, marinating her, her mind in, in those words. Yeah, so we, we go looking all over the world in universities, in books. We go to the wise men and women of this age to look for truth, and it's in the book our mothers used to read. It's been around for a long, long time. It goes all the way back to Moses. A group of Jews receiving direct revelation themselves with the word of God, predicting the future with absolute 100% accuracy. That's the truth that God has given us to dispel the lies. I had the most uh, remarkable experience this last week. I, uh, I rarely read Ezekiel. I, I, I have to admit that to you. Uh, Ezekiel uh, depresses me. He had a hard time of it. He, he was ministering to people that didn't want to listen to him. He spent his, poured his whole life into a bunch of folks that could care less. But God warned him on the front end that that's the way it would be. And uh, I don't, I don't know if you probably uh, uh, know chapter one if you don't don't know anything else about Ezekiel because you know the the uh, Negro spiritual Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air. What Ezekiel saw was God on His throne. Most of the prophets, that's where most of the prophets start because ministry always grows out of worship. You see who God is and everything flows out of that awareness of who he is. He sees this canopy which represents heaven and down under the canopy there are these strange uh, creatures that are running about every which way. They've got these gyroscopic wheels, you know, that send them in all directions at once. They move with the speed of thought through the universe. They have all these, these wings that they flap and and uh, they cover their feet with two, and they cover their faces with two, and and they they, you know, what are these things? Well, they're cherubs, they're angels, God's messengers to accomplish His will. Sends them out throughout the universe. And, you know, we've talked before about the fact that the earth is crammed with them, gazillions of them, all over the place, millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of angels doing God's will all around, everywhere. Unseen, except by the eye of faith. But they're here. They're just as real as this thing is. You just can't hear them. They don't send out any sound waves. You can't see them. They send out any light waves. They don't emit any light waves. But they're here. And the real battle, as we've seen, is taking place behind the scenes. We wrestle not, Paul says, against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness in high places. The real clash, the real conflict is in the unseen realm. 
And when we do the right things, when we employ the weapons of faith, and we, we too are engaged in this great cosmic conflict in which our Lord is engaged. So we've got to learn to do the right things. And one of the right things is to proclaim the word. The interesting thing about this, uh, you know, it's hard for Ezekiel to explain what he saw because there are no analogies for what he saw in human experience. So he has to symbolize all of this. The symbols are very clear. These agents are at work out there in the unseen world. They're doing something. God then hands Ezekiel a scroll, a rolled up book. And he unrolls it for Ezekiel. And the first thing he notices is it's written on both sides, which is unusual because normally they prepared just one side of a manuscript. It was papyrus or vellum or whatever it was. They prepared one side. The outside was rough. The inside was smooth. And they wrote on that surface. This man, this uh, scroll had, had writing on both sides. It's completely full. Point being, God had a great deal to say, and he didn't want Ezekiel adding anything to it, annotating it. You know, just, just say what I tell you. So he hands him a scroll, and he says, eat it. So Ezekiel starts to munch on the end of his scroll, and to a surprise, it tastes as sweet as honey. And then God says, go preach it. And he takes one step and he starts to go preach it. And listen to this. He heard behind him a loud rushing sound. The sound of the wings of the living creatures. Those creatures that are mentioned in chapter 1. The sound of the wings of the living creatures brushing against each other. And the sound of the wheels beside them. A loud rumbling sound. You understand what happened? When Elijah began to preach, he activated the hosts of heaven. And hordes of these angels went into battle with Elijah, or with, <laughs> with, with Ezekiel, against principalities and powers and people and the forces that invade against Ezekiel and, and his message. He, by the simple proclamation of, of the word of God, set in motion the mighty armies of God, forces for which the world has no countermeasures. Boy, I don't know how that strikes you, but that really gets me excited. To know that when I simply speak the word of God, something happens. I may not see it, but it activates the armies of God. God's word spoken with quiet assurance, even ineptly moves heaven and earth. You know, we draw Excalibur, the sword of the Spirit, and we join the angelic hosts by which the world, the flesh, and the devil are overthrown. I have a quote from Luther on my, uh, over my desk. It goes like this. He was writing with reference to the Reformation. You know, Martin Luther, of course, I'm sure you know, is the man who almost single-handedly triggered off the uh, Protestant Reformation. He says, I did nothing. The word of God did it all. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept and drank Wittenberg beer with Philip and Amsdorf, the word weakened the papacy. It's Martin Luther. I did nothing. I preached. I wrote the word of God. And God did it all. Now, let me share a concern that I have. It worries me when I see Christians 
resorting to Earth's measures to counteract Earth's lies. Uh, press releases, demonstrations, protests, boycotts, media events. Augustine lamented, what, what, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? Why do we have to ape the adversary? Why do we have to erect countermeasures that are exactly what the world is doing when we have these mighty weapons of faith which, which God has given to us? A better way is to recover the art of informed proclamation. I'm not talking about shooting from the hip. I'm talking about getting to know the word so that we know it, so it's a part of our thinking, so that we have bought into the mind of Christ, so that we know what he knows, so that we feel what he feels, so that we hate what he hates, so we love what he loves, we believe what he believes. And then we begin to proclaim it. That word has power to demolish the intellectual strongholds that people construct to fend off God. I'm convinced that no one has ever rejected Christ for intellectual reasons. It is always for moral and emotional reasons. Jesus says, you don't like the light because it uncovers the darkness. That's why people reject the truth. Paul says a simple word delivered even ineptly. His divine power to overwhelm, to overcome these these so-called intellectual strongholds that people have by which they resist the the truth. Paul says we demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And Paul practiced what he preached when he went to Athens, Luke tells us that he looked around him and he saw the idols. You know, just zillions of idols everywhere. Luke says he, he was distressed. The word that Luke chooses for that emotion really expresses a mass of emotions. Fear, anger, grief. Uh, he was upset when he saw people who had a heart for God but were looking in all the wrong places. What does he do? Does he protest? Does he picket? No. Luke says he reasoned in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Paul in another place says, By setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. When you begin to speak God's word, it resonates in the heart. It goes right down into that realm of of, of, of of life that uh, has to do with feelings and, and dispositions and impressions. It sets up a sympathetic vibration in the heart. And whether people believe it or, or not, they know it's true. God said to Ezekiel at a later stage in his life, whether, whether, they, when, whether people hear you or refuse to hear you, at least they'll know a prophet's been in your midst. They know it is true. Because it's God's word. As its own apologetic, defends itself, protects itself. The conscience knows it's true. A number of years ago, my friend Ray Stedman was called to uh, uh, be a witness in a trial. And there was an organization in town that was going to put up a building and engage in an activity that most Christians, uh, this was in Palo Alto, California, where I live formerly, and most Christians in the area felt that this was absolutely wrong and that it would, 
Palo Alto High School is right across the street, and it was simply not the place to, to build that building. Ray was not inclined to get involved in, 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 in any of the public protests, but he was asked to, uh, to appear in a, a hearing, which, which he did. And in the course of the hearing, the uh, spokesman for the people that were, gonna, they were engaging in this uh, enterprise said to Ray, Dr. Stedman, don't you know that if we don't put in this uh, operation, someone else will? It's just a matter of time. And Ray didn't say anything. He reached in his pocket, pulled out a little New Testament, and he just quietly read, leaned over into the microphone, and quietly read Luke 17. It is impossible but that offenses should come, but woe be to him through whom they come. For it would be better for them that a millstone be, be hanged around their neck and they be placed in the deepest part of the sea than that you should offend one of these little ones who believe on me. And the guy that was standing in front of him turned white as a sheet. Okay. That's the impact that the Bible has. You, you don't have to ornament it. To have said it's all, is all. It's power. It's authority. You may not always see it. may not be that vivid, but it has that impact. And it strikes the heart in a way that, that nothing else does. And people know it's... It's true. I would encourage you to read the newspaper every morning and read it prayerfully and then ask yourself what event lends itself to an opportunity to witness to Christ today. Things are happening in our community every day that are springboards into conversations. And instead of railing against the darkness, use them as opportunities. Redeem the time. Paul said, because the days are evil. We talked about that passage last week. Evil things become opportunities to proclaim the truth. Read the newspapers and ask yourself, what what can I use today to speak a word in season to him that's weary? There are broken hearts out there, men and women that are are dying. We have an opportunity to, to speak the truth to them, not in some abrupt and harsh way. We don't want to pin them wriggling against the wall. That's not the point. But we can very lovingly and graciously and and gently expose them to the truth. I was thinking while I was working on this message of what happened when MCA Universal put out The Last Temptation of Christ. Do you remember that? Scorsese's book. I didn't see the movie. I read the book. Actually, the book wasn't half bad. It really painted the humanity of Christ well. They, they did. The movie was blasphemous. Christians were outraged. They were absolutely outraged. Almost every uh, ar- uh, magazine article that I read you know, during that time had some suggestion on what to do. You know. Boycott the, the theaters. Uh, boycott uh, MCA Universal by not buying uh, E.T. You know, that was their most popular video. And don't buy their E.T. because you don't want that money to go in, you know, in, into those pagan coffers. Uh, someone suggested that we raise millions of dollars to buy the, the film and then have a public burning. You know what happened to The Last Temptation of Christ? It fizzled. It was a terrible movie. It was boring. Nobody wanted to go see it. It died. In fact, uh, so, I don't know if it's true or not. Someone told me later that uh, Universal Theaters, uh, let out, you know, they let it out that it's blasphemous because they knew that anything Christians were against, the rest of the world would be for it, and they'd all go see it. You know, Whatever's banned in Boston, everybody wants to read. 
Of course, nothing's banned in Boston anymore. But... <laughs> you know, I think we missed a wonderful opportunity. You know what I wish we had done? Instead of picketing and protesting and shaking our fists, you know, I, I oh, you know, I, there, there were TV shots that showed Christians, you know, these angry faces and clenched fists, and they were in somebody else's face yelling, and I thought, oh, how horrible. What a wonderful opportunity, you know, to wander into the marketplace, into your shop, your schoolroom, your office. Did you see the movie? You know, what'd you think of it? Did you ever consider that Jesus was not only a, not only God, but he was a man? And that he was tempted in all points, just as we are, and yet without sin? Oh, it's so great to have a God like that, who became man, a God who would be man. Who, who, who understands what we're going through? Boy, what a launching pad. What a takeoff point for the gospel, see? We don't have to shrink from the truth and recoil. Feel like we have nothing to say. But why buy into the world's ways of combating evil? Light a candle. See? Bring some light into the situation. Proclaim uh, a little gospel. I want to end with a poem that Ruth Bell Graham wrote. He's not eloquent as men count such. For him words trip and stumble, giving speech an awkward touch. So much is left unsaid that he would say if he were eloquent, wisely discontent, compassion-driven. The old, the lonely, and the outcast come. All are welcome and find a home, all as brothers. Behind him, deeds rise quietly to stay. And those with eyes to see can see all he can say. Do you understand? You know, it's awful hard to read poetry and have it get across. But what the, the point is that when, when we speak God's word, even without eloquence, even ineptly, just quietly, we just may bumble our way through it. But as we say it, deeds rise quietly behind us. I thought of that other metaphor that, that Paul uses, that wherever you go, you leave behind the aroma of Christ, that sweet fragrance of the presence of Christ. Oh, what an opportunity we have. Seize the day, carpe diem. Use the hour, use all these opportunities to invest yourself in getting to know the Word of God and proclaiming that Word to, to those that are weary. Count on God to get you to the right place at the right time to say the right thing to the right person. Let's pray. God, why would we resort to the the trivial weapons of this world when we hold Excalibur in our hands? May we learn to be more deft in our use of it, that keen, subtle sword which you give us, which can be used to penetrate the heart, to expose the motives, the intents, the desires, the longings, the hungers of the heart, and draw people to you. Make us faithful in our use of the word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.